my parents were in love in Sri Lanka and my dad left before my mom and there was no phones. There was only letters. He was leaving in a very uncertain environment. Their families didn't yet know that they were in love. And all he told her was, I promise to send for you. Welcome to the Intuitively Aligned podcast, a place for changemakers to cultivate their intuition and foster greater impact in their everyday lives. I am your guide, Sydney Bloom. Today's episode, we're going to do something that's a little bit different than we have in the past. I have an incredible conversation with Mothera Temwa Mahendran, and we are bringing you pretty much the raw, unedited, full conversation that Mothera and I had. I wanted to share with you because so much beauty and magic came through in our intention setting pre-podcast and in the way that Mothera closes our conversation that we decided together to leave it all there for you and break it into two episodes. This first part one is the opening of our conversation. And I suspect you will want to just continue listening right into part two, because the conversation is so raw, so beautiful and love-filled and also very, very insightful. I will not see the world the same way after that conversation. And I hope that you get just as much out of it. So Madhra Temwa Mahendran is a storyteller by nature and design researcher by nurture. Her practice is rooted in a commitment to designing and sharing tools, frameworks, and brave spaces that can hold individuals, groups, and relationships through difference, discomfort, grief, change, and ultimately growth. She is also intimately aware of the ways in which our ability to move through these experiences is intertwined with how and how deeply we were taught to love. To that end, Love is both the method and the madness that underpins all of her bodies of work. She is the author of the recently launched toolkit and audiobook, Dismantling the Master's Tools, a somatic approach to interrogating white supremacy, and the curator and subject of the Metamorphosis exhibit. In her spare time, she is an aspiring meme. Has anything else made you feel as seen, laugh as hard, and or left you as speechless as the perfect meme? I will share links to Mothera's body of work in the show notes, but I do just want to mention that there will be a link to the body of work that is dismantling the master's tools, and there will also be a link to the Spotify, and as an audio listener, I'm so, so grateful that you've shared your work in an audio format. And I wanted to say thank you. And I love that you're modeling a different way of working that's in keeping with the values that you're also bringing through your practice in so many different ways. Thank you for the introduction. It's my pleasure. I'm so thrilled to have you here. I feel like every conversation we've had always feels so integrative and grounding for me and healing. And as I was reviewing your body of work, preparing for our podcast, I was just thinking how grateful I am that you exist and that you are bringing your magic into the world because you know how sometimes you can feel alone when you see the complexity of things and wonder if other people also see and experience that. I know I felt that around systems change and I'm not sure why I never fully realize the extent to which social R&D is really bound up in your body of work. Like I kind of knew it, but I didn't know it. And so that just gave me a lot of comfort. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. I think I've realized and come to accept that everything that I make is for me first and sometimes just for me and I like happen to put it out into the world realize there's resonance and then do more on that front to kind of share it but Mm -hmm. there is something to basically kind of taking your insides apart putting it back together and then articulating it and realizing that other bodies are moving through similar experiences and I think one of the things that has been reflected back to me consistently is around 
being able to provide language for things that we all experience but feel alone in because we either don't have the language or that language is not acceptable within the realms that we operate in like whether that's emotion or body or intuition as I'm sure we'll talk about today and almost delegitimizing those intelligences the way we've been conditioned delegitimizes those intelligences so you not only don't trust them we pathologize them like oh you're too emotional or like what does your body know it's about your brain right yeah well it's a gift it's definitely a gift and I want to do intention setting because I feel like we could just flow right into things. And I know we, I know we will. I feel like we won't even need to say we're beginning because we're, we've already begun, but I do want to do intention setting. I remember the very first time that I had an experience of receiving someone else's words and it capturing a feeling I'd had that I'd never spoken before. And I can tell you what it was. And I was thinking that in the company that we keep in our lives, I often forget that most people go through life without having that kind of safety and offering that your body of work embodies or that the community that we belong to has invited yeah. and and permitted in a way. Yeah. So it's been very stunning to me lately having conversations <laughs> with people and realizing they don't have anybody in their life who is that portal of safety. Mm -hmm. And they're not mad about it even because they don't know that exists. Yeah. And that might be a whole other conversation because I do think that there's intentionality that can come in creating life with community and who knows how we'll get, if and how we'll get there. But yeah, it wasn't until 2008 that I had a moment where I read it was in love in the time of cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yeah. And in the very first chapter of the book, there's this description that literally spoke on paper, a feeling that I had had, and I never knew that anyone else in the world had ever had it. And then that was the first time I realized, Oh, other people know things that we feel, but we're not capable of articulating it, or we don't have those spaces that you were describing. So, yeah. So it really is a gift and it's probably a gift beyond, like, you know, the gift that you've received from others when they've given you that permission, but I don't know that you fully know the gift that you're giving. Oh. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Do you want to start intention setting or shall I? <laughs> I'm always happy to, but I also feel really open and curious. I think you start and I'll follow. So my intention for today is that our time spent together and that what we are creating and that the, the being that it takes serves both of our best and highest good with ease, grace, love, vitality, fulfillment, richness in all of the richness of life that we may yearn for and need, that this conversation doesn't just expand us and bring us clarity and insight and the kind of healing that comes through sharing stories and weaving together our understanding of impact and intuition. I just saw our screen had like a, things are happening on the screen. <laughs> Did you see that too? Did you the get flicker? Yeah, yeah, there's a flicker. I don't know if that happens with your internet. Sometimes I'm like, ooh, it's spirit. And someone's like, no, I just have like a really shit internet connection. <laughs> it doesn't happen consistently enough that it's internet. So I've never seen it. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen it. And what else? Yeah, that, that we receive all of that, but that this container that we're creating and holding also supports each and every individual being that taps into it in any way, shape, or form, and that they may receive serving their best and highest too, and that they also receive that portal into who they're becoming 
and that it's supported with like I always hold ease in my intentions because I think sometimes we just choose the fucking hardest path possible and it doesn't need to be that way. So let this be like the hypotenuse to empowerment and love and joy for all of us. And also I hold all of this in a space of infinite possibility and miracles beyond our wildest dreams and working across time and space and the boundaries that we create for ourselves also so that what we're doing is truly limitless and held in all time. And I invite you to add any intentions that you have for this episode too. My sense is that we will likely move through some, if not a bunch of uncharted territory for both of us together. I imagine like we've probably walked some of the paths individually, some of the paths, both of us, but separately. So I, my sense is that we're moving through some, if not a lot of uncharted territory together in this time. And I very much feel my lineage at my back and my sense from connecting with you is that you hold yours with you as well and want to invite in the wisdom that comes through our respective lineages, whether that's ancestral, whether that's professional, whether that's people who are kind of in our lives in real time, and also invite in protection, whatever that looks like for the traveling of uncharted territory, protection that comes through whatever form we are most awake to in this moment. Sometimes it's a glitch, sometimes it's a light flickering, sometimes it's just a feeling in the body. And I wanted to share a story and maybe follow it up with an offering if that feels good. And if not, we don't need to kind of follow through with it. My paternal grandparents lived with us growing up. So my parents were immigrants from Sri Lanka and both close to the oldest in both of their families. So one of their quote unquote duties as, as the closer to oldest children was to bring their parents over. So my paternal grandparents, so Apama and Apapa lived with us growing up. And my grandmother every day, Apama every day at the crack of dawn, she would be up singing her prayers. And so that was kind of, you had the alarm clock, but then this was the more persistent alarm clock. And a lot of the times I didn't really understand what was going on other than this is ritual. This is something that is like practice for her, something that she does every day. This is somewhere where she puts her faith. And as much as, you know, sometimes you just want to sleep in and, <laughs> and you're, you're hearing the prayers. I think there was what I knew at that age was that she is, this is an act of service to the family because she would say each and every one of her kids' names, their spouses, their kids. She has nine children, so you can imagine. <laughs> I, that's incredible. <laughs> and so even if you didn't understand like the mantras or their meanings, you heard your name in the queue and you knew that this was her way of grounding, but also calling in protection every single day for for the family. And I think as immigrants, particularly from that generation, you're kind of wondering about what you contribute and what you bring. And it was kind of very clear that this was her contribution, whether she saw it as that or not. And so there's one mantra that I don't know the meaning of, but, and I don't even remember singing it, but my body knows it. And more recently I've been offering to open experiences with that it's called the guy three mantra but even that I just learned a couple like years ago it was very new I just it was up mantra like I mm. I didn't really kind of draw the religious connection or like even the spiritual connection it was kind of just this was up mantra and she said it for us so when I sing it I don't sing it with any sort of religious or spiritual connotation it's just my personal lineage and what that has brought to to me 
So my invitation or offering is, would it, would it serve us for me to sing that here? I would love it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to close my eyes. Uh, feel free to, if you want as well. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. Thanks for being open to it. I feel like I fully received it. Mm. Just going to take a moment to dry my face with my outfit. <laughs> <laughs> That's so beautiful. And I feel it's so easy to forget where we come from. And I feel like that mantra just washed me with the tapestry of our lives and the interconnection to all of our ancestors and our generations and now what an incredible world that this woman who grew up in Sri Lanka who then was in Toronto filling your home with her prayers is here on a podcast with us <laughs> the future is wild <laughs> the future is wild <laughs> And that was absolutely beautiful. So thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you, Abama. Thank you, Abama. I'm sure there'd be like a proper formal way for me to address it, which <laughs> isn't calling her Abama. <laughs> no, I think that's probably the the most, I mean, it's the most familial relational way. Yeah. She wouldn't mind. No. no. Well, thank you. I definitely feel expanded and you know I don't know if there's a way to really get ready for conversations like you said when we're moving into the unknown you don't know right but that was for sure the most beautiful opening I've ever experienced and definitely on this podcast so it may be the first episode where I ask and we don't have to decide it now but I may ask you later if we actually keep our whole container as the episode yeah because it feels so whole I mean, we can check in later, but as of right now, I'm sure. Thank you. And yeah, we'll check in on it. And if people are listening to this conversation, <laughs> then you know that it made it into the episode and you are blessed by Upama as well. So I feel honored today to have you here. And where would you like to begin? Where would we like to begin? I can start by sharing maybe a little bit of my practice, hopefully as a way to kind of ground people in what I mean when I say practice or my work, because I feel like I use both of those terms often. Does that sound? That sounds perfect. Cool? Okay. So when I'm asked what I do, there's kind of different ways that I go about sharing. And there are some that might be easier to hold on to than others, depending on kind of where you're coming at it. In terms of the things that are on my resume, the, <laughs> the words that show up the most are researcher, designer, storyteller, and facilitator. So that's usually what goes in the contract. It's usually kind of the what role do you play? 
I work across sectors, so it's not specific to like healthcare or finance or nonprofit or corporate. So it's a really nice window into a little bit of everything. And I think that's where I thrive the most. And there are a few connecting threads between all of my bodies of work. The first one being that consciously or unconsciously people or groups or relationships tend to bring me in to slow things down in a world where most people are paid to speed things up. And it is often not slowing down for the sake of slowing down. It's often slowing down for the sake of gaining clarity, for the sake of moving through conflict, for the sake of repair, for the sake of really honing in on our purpose, for the sake of focus. And sometimes people know that a slowdown is needed and that's why they're bringing me in. Oftentimes you're bringing me in for one of the research, storytelling, facilitation, or design. And part of the way that I work is asking why and asking why and asking why. And what that question does when asked in all these different kinds of ways is it really invites you to contend with what are the longings in the room? What are the longings in the group? What are the longings within our respective bodies? Because for better or for worse, I am very attuned to the longings in the room, but I don't want to put that on bodies that aren't ready to feel that for themselves yet. There's a responsibility that comes with naming what you see. And particularly if you're naming things that people aren't yet aware of, like there's a responsibility around, do you share that information? When do you share that information? And I think for me, the safest way that I've found in doing that is to create a space where people can get them, get there themselves rather than, you know, prescribing or assigning or diagnosing that like this is what you're carrying because ultimately I might be sensing something but your body is carrying it and it should be the one to give voice to whatever it is if and when it feels safe so we did a little went a little bit deeper into into the work there than I initially intended but maybe the last thing that I'll say around practice and and then I'll kind of toss it back to you to mirror back whatever whatever we want to dig deeper into is the fuel. So oftentimes when we talk about work, we talk about the form and the function and we don't really leave enough room or, or resource the fueling of the, right. the type of change that we're moving toward. And for me, the fuel is love. And I really, really, really want to define that just because that word has been tossed around a bunch and my relationship to it has also changed over the course of my life. That would be um, amazing. Please define love for us. <laughs> I know just from our conversations, talking to you about love expands my own understanding of love. So I hope that anybody <laughs> listening feels that too, that this is this is going to be a love journey, but it might not be the journey you expect it to be, but it's the journey we need for sure. Thanks, friend. So there's two definitions that I kind of subscribe to. The first one is one by Valerie Kaur. She shares this definition in her book, See No Stranger. And she says, love is more than a feeling. Love is a form of sweet labor, fierce, bloody, imperfect, and life-giving, a choice we make over and over again. If love is sweet labor, love can be taught, modeled, and practiced. This labor engages all of our emotions. Joy is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. Anger protects that which is loved. And when we think we've reached our limit, wonder is the act that returns us to love. So that's the first definition. And I think... The, the, the couple of things that I want to point out and really draw out from that is the fact that it is a choice. So it's more than a feeling. Love is an action. Mm -hmm. The fact that it, she calls it labor, it is work and we are worked when we love. And I really appreciate the words that she uses, fierce, bloody, imperfect, and life-giving. 
Like you could be engaging in labor, but if it's not life-giving, it begs the question of, is this coming from a place of love, love for myself, love for the other? And then I really appreciate that she says that it can be taught and modeled and practiced. You don't, I think we often have a tendency to look at people around us and be like, oh, you do this so much better than I do. But to know that this can be built, it is a capacity that we have, but it can be coaxed out, it can be strengthened, it can be practiced. And then the last piece around love can take many forms and faces. And, you know, there's certain emotions that we like to associate with love, like joy, like wonder. And then there's others that we kind of put on the opposite end of the spectrum, like grief and anger. And I think what this definition of love expands is that every emotion that we feel can be mapped back to a place of love. And when we do that work and when we hold that intention, it's really hard to pathologize other people and or parts of ourselves as bad or not good and rather come at it from a place of how do I labor for this part of me? What does it need in this moment? So that's one definition. (laughs) Brilliant. And I'd never heard that definition before mm. and it and it brings so much understanding into so many things as I mean obviously this is so foundational to what you do in life and in your work so it makes sense that the process of defining is important and that that definition stands through all of the different experiences where you're working with love as the fuel mm-hmm. so to speak Okay, what's the other definition? <laughs> now I'm curious. The other definition is much shorter and it is one that my friend Miskan and I came up with at some point during our undergrad. We were probably processing something, reflecting on something while lying on the floor as we did and do. And it was just a very quick, Some one of us blurted it out and it was to be loved is to be understood. And the flip side of that, to love is to understand. And for me, that definition helps me understand my obsession with stories and storytelling. Because what I've understood about myself is that how I take in, process, and understand the world is through stories. And so stories are what bring me back to love. And stories are what help me understand the people around me, the relationships around me, the groups around me. So that kind of, that thread connects how love is the fuel and story is also one of the mediums through media through which I kind of return to love or access love. That makes so much sense. You know that I'm the parent of small children because I was thinking if love is the fuel, then the stories are the wheels on the car. And my three and a half year old is a self-proclaimed mechanic. And every day we take wheels on and off and rebuild the cars. And I sort of feel like, you know, in a much more literal way that anyway, it's, it's a funny little metaphor, but I think I love it, that. you can't go without the wheels. Yeah, And, and it's, it's an interesting, I guess I'm just going to voice this as an invitation and a challenge for us and for anyone listening who, for those who love a linear path and for those who want to know what the what is and have a harder time following the stories, it feels very validating to hear your invocation of the role of stories in that, in that process that we're all in or that journey to understanding or that, that journey fueled by love if you will and I think it really is a process I'm going to be really curious to learn more about how you work and what you do and what your practice is and also the role that your own inner knowing has played in bringing you to this place you know having started with an opening bringing in the spirit of your grandmother when I meet people who have such a unique perspective and commitment to embodying their values in the world in a way that you do I always wonder, you know, who are their people? Where did you come from? And and how early did you know your soul's calling, if you will? There's a lot that we can cover. And I think it's just as important for people who are less comfortable with 
the journey of storytelling maybe even more important for those folks to really settle in and start to explore why why that is and and how stories can actually get us where we need to go collectively not that I'm trying to put that on anyone for sure and I think similar to how you know I want to kind of define the word love just because it's it's used so much and and as with anything within the systems that we live in it can be co-opted right and I think story like the concept of story is neutral, but the practice of story absolutely is not. And the ways in which stories have been extremely destructive, the, the ways in which stories have, the stories that have been told have erased entire histories and entire lineages. Like if we think of all the untold and actually actively suppressed stories of, you know, the indigenous lineages that have built this country, so I think story is a powerful medium and can be reclaimed to kind of connect with our lineage and share that and build alternative narratives around who we are and how we ended up here. And there is also kind of the flip side to that. So I think that the idea of discernment and being able to feel for why is this story attractive to me? you know, what belief is it reinforcing? And is that a belief that I want to question? Is that a belief that I'm actively invested in making sure it does not break? So there's a lot of courage, I think, required in really contending with one's own story, particularly if it doesn't fit the mold of linear. If, you know, we talk a lot about how do I keep, and why do I keep ending up in the same place again and again and again? And I think that is only quote unquote bad if you believe in linear paths, right? If yes. there are so many modes and cultures of storytelling where it is cyclical. And once you've kind of let go of the idea that ending up in the quote unquote same place again and again is bad, there is like once that charge of bad is gone, you can actually see you're not, you're not in the same place. And there's actually no way that you could be in the same place because even if the literal figurative place is the same, you are different. You're coming back to this place differently. You're seeing through different eyes and it might be a similar loop. And if you want to break it, that there, there's, there's something there to be learned, but I think not discounting how much you've changed. I think stories can also be markers of who you're becoming and where you've been and a good story doesn't need to have, it doesn't need to shit on a past self. You know, yes. it doesn't need to be like, oh yeah, back then I didn't know that. And like, you know, I was naive then. Like, why do we need to diminish who we were in order to stand tall in who we are? That resonates a lot. I appreciate you saying it. And I feel like we need to say that over and over and over to remind ourselves what you're talking about is also tapping into that place of remembering. Mm -hmm. And do you want to say a little bit about what remembering means to you while we're here? Sure. I think I said to you earlier that for me, I think of anything that kind of comes through me in terms of my practice, how I move in the world that feels more generative, that feels more life-affirming compared to kind of the ways that we're taught to work within the dominant systems of capitalism, white supremacy. I don't think it's new. Like I don't, I don't discover it. I don't invent it, but rather it feels like I am remembering it. Like it is a way of moving and being and doing that my body, that my lineage knows and what it needs to remember is the safety of kind of knowing that it is welcome to move in that way in this space and that it won't be punished for moving in that way. And I can tell when I'm remembering something because there's an ease. If you, if you kind of think to learning a new skills, if you're totally learning it from scratch, like there is that, like that initial like rustiness resistance. And of course, when I'm remembering kind of something that my body has known, I'm not perfect at it, but there's an ease. There's like a, oh, we're back. Or, 
like something about it. it's kind of like whenever I go home to my parents house after a long time and have a dish that my mom has cooked it's like something about this just feels at home yeah and it has roots like there is a rootedness in a way that I think new ideas are great and energizing but they don't have roots I think that's how I would define remembering thank you you're the person who introduced me to the idea of remembering as having a a dash yeah so it's re-membering so it's bringing together all of your members I think it was Alexis Pauline Gums that I first heard that from and I it just read again it felt like remembering remembering <laughs> she said it and I was yes. like yes that's it yes and that really resonates for me in my own intuitive practice I call it the deep remembering because I feel like there's truths that we encounter that have that profound rootedness in our being as you're describing even if it's not something we've thought about or seen or felt in a long time but when we encounter it we remember that it's a part of us or a part of our home or a part of our deep innate inner knowing and I find in my practice with people oftentimes we we do end up having a direct conversation with parts of an individual and it can be a part of their body it can be a part of their spirit it can come up in lots of ways I try to be very conscious of all of the constructs that we operate in so even the language that I use to describe these parts it's really the individual's place to know and feel and say what it is that's coming up and not for me to label it but that that remembering remembering mm -hmm. and that connecting to parts of ourselves that we've tuned down a little bit or numbed out or felt safer to hide and then you know I think of a tree that has a a branch sawed off and then how over time the ivy and the moss and the ivy and the insects all start growing and then suddenly, you know, yes, you could think of it as having lost that part or you can look at it and say, well, what's here now and how alive is this? And maybe it's a new perspective on what that part has been through. Anyway, we could journey deep into those, into those parts, but it's always really refreshing to hear other people's perspectives on what remembering is to you, because I think that's such a profound part of us arriving in our being, in our wholeness. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your relationship to your own inner knowing and when you first became aware of something, whatever yeah. it was to you? So I've thought about this question and I was trying to see if there was a moment and there was a question that you actually asked earlier in, mm. in this conversation where you were like, where are you from? Like, who are your people? And I think the answer to this question around, you know, when did you first experience your inner knowing? And the answer to that question, I think, are linked. And I think because for me, the, the inner knowing, the intuition is an inheritance, or I experience it as an inheritance through my ancestral lineage in particular, but possibly others as well. And there's a story <laughs> that, that comes with it. It is one that can be kind of heavier to hold. I share it because I'm, I'm comfortable kind of sharing it, but I guess to you and anyone listening, the content warning that I would kind of put around that is premature loss of a child. And does it work for you? Yeah. For me to absolutely. share that story. Okay. And thank you for giving the content warning for the <laughs> audience as well. Of course. So as I kind of shared earlier in the in the episode, my parents were refugees from Sri Lanka and they were kind of the first in their families to come. And they had decided kind of pretty early on in their marriage and their relationship that they were only going to have one kid just because that's kind of what they could afford afford within their means and 
their kind of intention was to give this kid everything that they possibly could. And they were both working as she was growing up. And so she was in daycare for kind of all the time that she wasn't with them or when they were working. And she went to, to daycare and she saw that everybody else had brothers and sisters. And so she came home and she was like, I want one of those. And <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, my parents could not say no to, to that. So they conceived me. And so in some ways I exist because she asked. And a month into my mom's pregnancy or into kind of my existence as a fetus, my sister came home from daycare and just like wasn't feeling well. It started off as a stomach ache and kind of progressed and they were worried. So they called an ambulance and it all kind of happened very quickly where her blood pressure dropped. And once they got to the hospital, they immediately kind of told my parents to leave the room, that they couldn't be in the room and kind of took her into kind of the resuscitation measures and all of that. And to this point, they, or now they know what it was. It was a rare heart condition, but they like weren't able to revive her. And that was an extremely, as you can imagine, traumatizing, life-altering loss. And just even the way that it happened, the speed, the not being able to be there, all of that. And the way they tell that story, and my parents have never hid that from us. The way they tell that story is she knew that she wasn't going to be with us and that's why she asked for you and also the way that they tell the story that has shaped me is we would not have made it through that loss if it wasn't for you and the need to kind of carry that carry that potential carry that child all of all of that and as you can imagine that has shaped me in all kinds of of ways but i think that and I guess the the other thing I should say is her name is Mothera and so I was Mothera so another layer to kind of wow. add to <laughs> to all of that but I think coming back to intuition and inner knowing I exist according to that story because of my sister's inner knowing if we're going kind of based on that and I think that has also shaped the like the flavor of my inner knowing in that I was incubated in a body that was like from one month one the first month of pregnancy onward I was incubated in a body that was moving through profound grief in a body that did not want to continue existing in a body that was angry in a body that was conflicted in a body that needed me to survive and also I needed that body to survive in order for me to survive so I think if you're coming back to the body if you're thinking about the conditions in which my cells developed in which my impulses like the impulses that have like the brain has not even developed at this point like this is solely just what the body knows like I'm very attuned to grief. I'm very attuned to longing. I'm very attuned to loss. I'm very attuned to the things that you feel but can't say. So I think moving through the world now, now that I've made sense of it, it is not surprising who I attract and who I'm drawn to and why, you know, we're five minutes into a conversation, we're talking about mortality. And I did not engineer yes. that. Like, it's just yeah. kind of where, where we meet each other and where my spirit kind of goes. So I trust yeah. that. I trust that fully. <laughs> I trust it fully. And I might, with your permission, take it one step further and say, well, we never, I don't think I ever asked you did you share the meaning of temwa? Mm. Uh, no, I didn't, but I can. Would you? Would you? <laughs> because then I will share after that. But if you would share the meaning of temwa, then we can keep going and I can make one more loop. Okay. This also comes with a little story. I feel like that's my lead into everything. Here for the stories. <laughs> We're here for the stories. 
So I was given the name Temla in 2013. I was in Malawi. I was studying global health as a part of my health science degree. And I was in a program that facilitated an embedded learning experience with a local organization in a different country. So I was in Malawi, Mzuzu, Malawi, which is in northern Malawi. And we were there for four months. And we were working, like living alongside and working with a local grassroots community-based organization there. And on the first day when the program officer there that we'd be working with arrived, I think it became very clear that our names were not rolling off the tongue (laughs) in in the same way. And all of us were just like, just give us local names. Like, we'll, we'll just go by the local names. And there are certain names that are just very like common or popular. So she was, there was eight of us there from, from McMaster from Canada. And so she was kind of just like, you, you're this, you, you're this. She was like naming us, pointing at each one and giving us names. And she stops at me. She's like, you, you, I need to think about. <laughs> <laughs> and she gave everybody else the names. Seven people got names and I was the only one that didn't. And she was like, I'm going to go home. I'll think about it. And tomorrow I'll have the name. So th- that was our first day. On our second wow. day, she comes back. I've forgotten about the names at this point. And she looks at me and she's like, I have a name for you. And I was like, what is it? And she was like, Temwa. And I was like, oh, what does that mean? Like, I hadn't heard it. And she was like, it means love. And I, I think I was like seen, I felt seen, but also speechless and a little bit like, how did you see that so quick? Like we, we barely had a conversation. She kind of just, I mean, I'm sure she observed things, but I think for someone to see right through you to into your core so quickly, and she said it with so much conviction. It wasn't like, would you like this name? Like, I think this would be nice on you. It's like, no, you're a Tamwa. And it, it stuck and I would not respond to anything else for four months. So it kind of became, I, I refer to Temwa as the name, you know, people talk about being given a name at birth and you spend the rest of your life trying to live up to it. Yeah. For me, Temwa is like the aspirational name. She represents my highest self. And I think it, it has stuck. Yeah. What an amazing story. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. And yeah, I have no doubt that she saw your spirit with you, in you. And to travel back to your sister and her passing, what I was thinking as you were sharing the story or what was sort of just coming in for me was you were conceived out of this pure, pure love, that your parents loved her, that she knew and wanted and loved and called for you in. And so you were brought in to the family in this circle of love to create more joy and love for the family. And and she left, right? She went, she was taken through this tragic circumstance and unimaginable for for your parents and for you as a survivor who didn't meet her physically on earth and yet to me it just feels like she called you in as Temwa Mm. and your parents said yes Mm. you know I'm curious to ask did your parents have any more children after you so my parents, even before I could ask, they had my sister, my younger sister, because I think they were like, she's going to want one too. <laughs> yes, um, right. The spirit of of mother, uh, your sister's desire and knowing and seeing as a tiny child, the joy that a sibling would be, that intention or that dream stayed with the family. Mm-hmm. So as you were sharing the story, I just felt like it's Temwa. It's Temwa. <laughs> she brought Temwa in. And so I don't know if that lands for you, but I just wanted to acknowledge that. I mean, there's like a parallels there too, right? Like the the woman in Malawi who gave me the name Temwa, her name's Wezi. And everybody in our group was like, you two are joined at the hip. Like, I don't understand how this happened, but 
there was definitely like a sisterly relationship there and not to make this entirely about grief but Wesi also passed away very very suddenly like in a tragic circumstance that I don't want to kind of get into right now at the end of 2021 or 2021 and it does not surprise me that it was soon after that that I started putting Temwa into my official name like wherever I I kind of said this is my name this is what I do I would say mother at Temwa Mahendran like Temwa is always a part of me but it felt important to acknowledge that even if she wasn't there I'm so sorry for your loss and I think that makes sense do you have any stories that you want to share about how, excuse me, I'm struggling. Is it the throat chakra opening or is it <laughs> all of the pollution and all of the crying that I've already done today? Both and. Both and. And you know, what's funny too, is I wore this, this sort of giant, kind of like a cover-up, like a beach cover-up and I've never worn it and I never know when to wear it. And I popped it on right before we came on and I understood that I needed a tissue <laughs> and I don't have any. <laughs> So it's helping me. It's helping me in a way I could never have anticipated. I'm just sitting with everything you've shared because it feels so powerful. And, you know, one thing that I wonder about, because clearly the force of your existence has been present with you always and that inheritance. So you've shared stories about your family, about your relations who came before your sister Mothera and honored your ancestors before gen from generations before. When you look at the trajectory of your life and your body of work now, notwithstanding your journey as a small child, can you think of any other moments that you would want to talk about or share where you found yourself stepping into that inner knowing in a really deep way? I think, I don't know that I've ever kind of like articulated it, but I think one of the biggest decisions that I made and continue to make that has shaped my practice is working for myself for the most part. Mm. And I think that is shaped by all kinds of things that I might be conscious of and not. I think it takes, I've always had the narrative and my family also has had the narrative that I'm always the one who leaves. Like I left, I was the first in my like extended family and immediate family to leave for university. I was the first to leave the country are huge things mm -hmm. sorry just not to interrupt you but that's yeah. a huge first and my parents live we live in the same city but I don't live with them and to them that is like why <laughs> why <laughs> why wouldn't you why and just even practically like rent wise like just live with your yeah. parents but I think for them it's also like relational and proximity and things like that so I think for a long time I've had the narrative that like everyone else in my family are homebodies and like I'm the one who needs to to like leave and, and take risks and all of that and like I've kind of differentiated myself from my family in that way and yet we the the, the roots show in different moments and I think what I've realized is I would be arrogant if I said that I'm the only risk taker in my family like both my parents left their countries without knowing where they would end up my parents were in love in Sri Lanka and my dad left before my mom and there was no phones there was only letters he was leaving in a very uncertain environment their families didn't yet know that they were in love and all he told her was I promised to send for you and when I get where I'm supposed to get, which is eventually Canada, but likely through Africa and through Europe. So like there is risk in him leaving. There's 
their love took on giant risks. And then once they were here to kind of build this life from nothing, really, I think in moments where I, I tried to pay attention to where I, where I other, like, where do I try to kind of separate myself from people that I'm connected to? And in those moments, inviting in the, again, counter narrative of how are we the same here? And I can't say that I'm the only lever when I come from two people who left. And if they want to be homebodies now, it's because they, they're, they're settled in a yes. way. Like their nervous systems, even now there's traces of them like not fully being settled because they're so used to that survivor's instinct and like wanting to make sure and save for a time when, when they might not be able to kind of provide for themselves. But mm -hmm. I I think that part of my lineage and the, cur the courage to kind of step into the unknown and to truly bet on oneself and, 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 and nothing else that has helped inform me trying to build out my own practice. And I think having my own practice is what allows me to practice what I preach. It allows me to take the risks while still having a foundation that I can come home to I think it it started and it didn't start off with you know all my clients are values aligned I'm charging exactly what I I'm worth and all of that I think it took creating a safe haven for me to practice in the way that I wanted to with some projects while I was doing other things that were just for work and then once there was more leeway once I could say no to things once I had built up some of that backbone to not only take on projects, but shape them, then there was like that practice expanded. But what I've found over the course of the last, I don't know, I'd say like eight to 10 years is you need to have a place where you can practice the future that you want, like where you can practice mm -hmm. the, your desirable future, because in practicing that and not just like thinking about it but like in living that you're giving your body data and information and story and examples and lineage and precedent that this way of working not only can exist but does and you're making that happen so when all of the kind of other voices and forces as they exist come in and are like that's not possible you can't work in that way you don't need to cite anybody else. You can, and I think there's there's value in kind of drawing in community examples, but your your body cannot be convinced that it's not possible. And I think that is where the strongest sites, like our body is our strongest site of resistance. And I think within that, my practice has always been built and informed and inspired by others who have done the same and continue to do the same. But I think it's important to have that embodied lived experience of this is different than how we operate and this is possible and even more this is life-giving and I think that builds it decreases I find for me it, it's decreased my tolerance for anything less yes. so the more I'm able to do that I'm like no no, no. We, you can't you can no longer sell me the story that this is not possible because I know you are the living evidence because you in your body are choosing to root and be and create in this way that you do. And then you experience how generative it, it is for yourself and clearly for the people who work with you and who are in your life and who come into contact with you. Yeah. And I think so much of it is linked to you can only take others or guide others as far as you've traveled your yourself. Like if you don't know the terrain, you cannot guide in the same way or as effectively. And I think a lot of building out my practice has been contending with my own worthiness in a system that doesn't necessarily value or incentivize the way that I work. So going back to kind of what I said earlier, if what I'm doing is slowing things down in a system that prides itself on speeding things up, then not only do I need to outline to the people that I work with that there is value in slowing down, 
but I need to convince them or rather than convince, I need to show them that they are worthy of the slowdown. Like their bodies are worthy of the slowdown. This work is worthy of the slowdown and that the slowdown isn't like the worst thing that could ever happen, you know, like, which is, which is not an exaggerated response. Like that, that is what we're told. Like if you slow down, then you're failing. Right. So I think if I don't do the work of contending with my own worthiness and I'm trying to kind of facilitate people to contend with their own worthiness, I can only get so far. And you can smell it on people when they're preaching things that they have not moved through because I know what I'm asking you. I know the extent of reckoning that I'm asking you to do when I invite you to contend with your worthiness you are deserving of this space you deserve to do this work well you deserve to have the space to share your longings and to have them heard that completes part one of the conversation between myself and mother atemwa tune in for part two for the rest of this incredible podcast episode